Festive greetings, folks. I'm Tim Mendes of the Innsmouth Book Club, and I'm coming to you from the back room of the ye old Innsmouth bookshop here in not-so-sunny Innsmouth. Now, yeah, festival preparations are continuing apace, so I'll be getting out of here as soon as the last bus to Arkham arrives. Before that, I'm going to do a reading, and we're going to talk a little bit about a little oddity that I discovered. First off, I feel a need I need to apologise for the state of my throat. The croakiness can be attributed to the fact that I had a few pre-festival drinks last night with Mr Zadok Allen, and he was teaching me some bawdy Innsmouthian sea shanties. So yeah, hence the croakiness. I've not been trying to summon Tsarthogua, I promise. But while we were having our revels, I was flicking through my collection of Lovecraft Circle contributor tomes. Basically, I have a massive collection of all the members of the Lovecraft Circle. I've still got a few gaps, but I'm getting there. And while while I was doing so, I happened upon uh, a certain mouldering old tome called Eyes of the God, which is the complete fiction and poetry of R.H. Barlow. While I was having a flick through, I'd, I happened upon a story which is quite obscure from what I gather. I know it's certainly not been included in the Wordsworth Editions collection of Lovecraft's revision stories and collaboration stories, The Horror in the Museum, So, which is strange, which is a, it's a strange omission. But today I'm going to read for you and talk a little bit about the story The Battle That Ended the Century by R.H. Barlow and H.P. Lovecraft. Barlow was born in 1918 and lived until 1951 when he unfortunately committed suicide. He was a writer of fiction and poetry and an anthropologist who first started corresponding with HPL when he was 13 years old in the summer of 1931. By 15, he was getting Lovecraft to read and critique his stories. Now, Lovecraft went on to co-write or revise six of Barlow's stories. These are The Slaying of the Monster, the Horde of the Wizard Beast, Till Are the Seas, Collapsing Cosmoses, The Night Ocean, and the story we'll be looking at today, The Battle That Ended the Century. Nearly all of Barlow's tales were published in amateur journals affiliated with the NAPA or in the emerging fantasy fan magazines. The Battle Ended the Century was published in The Acolyte, but that wasn't until 1945, so long after H.P. Lovecraft had passed away. This is the third of their collaborations, and was written in July 1934, when Lovecraft was on an extended visit to Barlow's home in Florida. Now, I wonder if this is when he went looking at alligators. I'll have to ask Rob next time we get together. He mentioned in a letter to Clark Ashton Smith that he went looking at alligators in Florida. I wonder if this is when it was. This story is a satirical piece that lampoons and pays homage to many of Lovecraft and Barlow's friends, colleagues and sparring partners. Like I said, it is taken from Eyes of the God, the complete fiction of R.H. Barlow from Hippocampus Press, which was edited by S.T. Joshi, Douglas A. Anderson and David E. Schultz. Now, most of the names are based on real people, and many of them will be recognisable to the Lovecraft aficionado. Helpfully, there's also a, a glossary that, that was written by Barlow at the end, which sheds light on some of the more obscure references. After the reading, I will go through the notes and explain some of the more um, obscure references. Some of them will give you a good chuckle, I imagine. Now, something else that will give you a good chuckle is the fact that once they'd written this piece, Lovecraft mailed it to members of the circle, but he denied all knowledge of who'd written it. He said it was sent to him, but 
It's basically it was a pre-internet trolling by by H.P. Lovecraft. I, th- I think this story will go some way to dispelling all those sort of misconceptions about him being very humorless. Right. So without further ado, let's get into the reading. So here is the battle that ended the century by R. H. Barlow and H.P. Lovecraft. On the eve of the year 2001, a vast crowd of interested spectators were present amidst the romantic ruins of Cohen's garage on the former site of New York to witness a fistic encounter between two renowned champions of the strange story Ferminant, Two-Gun Bob, the Terror of the Plains, and Knockout Bernie, the Wild Wolf of West Chican. The wolf was fresh from his correspondence course in physical training, sold to him by Mr. Arthur Leeds. Before the battle, the auguries were determined by the venerated Tibetan Lama, Bill Lumley, who evoked the primal serpent god of Volusia and found unmistakable signs of victory for both sides. Cream puffs were inattentively vended by Vladistar Breniak, the partakers being treated by the official surgeons, Drs. D. H. Killer and M. Jin Brewery. The gong was sounded at 39 o'clock, after which the air grew red with the gore of battle, lavishly flung about by the mighty Texas slaughterer. Very shortly, the first actual damage occurred, the loosening of several teeth in both participants, one bouncing out from the wolf's mouth after a casual tap from two gun, described a parabola towards Yucatan, being retrieved in a hasty expedition by Messrs A. Hijacked Barrel and G. A. Scotland. This incident was used by the eminent sociologist and ex-poet Frank Chimesleep Short Jr. as the basis of a ballad of proletarian propaganda with three intentionally defective lines. Meanwhile, a potentate from a neighbouring kingdom, the F.J. of Akamin, also known to himself as an amateur critic, expressed his frenzied disgust at the technique of the combatants, at the same time peddling photographs of the fighters, with himself in the foreground, at five cents each. In round two, the Shokan Soka's sturdy right crashed through the Texan's ribs and became entangled in sundry viscera, thereby enabling Two-Gun to get in several telling blows on his opponent's unprotected chin. Bob was greatly annoyed by the effeminate squeamishness shown by several onlookers as muscles, glands, gore and bits of flesh were splattered over the ringside. During this round, the eminent magazine cover anatomist, Mrs. M. Blunderidge, portrayed the battlers as a pair of spirited nudes behind a thin veil of conveniently curling tobacco smoke, while the late Mr. C. Half-Cent provided a sketch of three Chinamen clad in silk hats and galoshes, this being his own original conception of the affray. Among the amateur sketches made was one by Mr. Goofy Hui, which later gained fame in the annual Cubist exhibit as Abstraction of an Eradicated Pudding. In the third round, the fight grew really rough, several ears and other appurtenances being wholly or partially detached from the frontier battler by the Shokan Shocker. Somewhat irritated, Two-Gun countered with some exceptionally sharp blows, severing many fragments from his aggressor, who continued to fight with all his remaining members. At this stage, the audience gave signs of much nervous excitement, instances of trampling and goring being frequent. The more enthusiastic members 
were placed in the custody of Mr. Harry Brobst of the Butler Hospital for Mental Diseases. The entire affair was reported by Mr. W. Lablash Talcum, his copy being revised by Horsepower Hate Art. Throughout the event, notes were taken by M. Lecomte de Herlette for a 200-volume novel cycle in the Proustian manner to be entitled Morning in September, with illustrations by Mrs. Blunderidge. Mr. J. Caesar Warts frequently interviewed both battlers and all the more important spectators, obtaining as souvenirs. After a spirited struggle with the FJ, an autographed quarter rib of two guns, in excellent state of preservation, and three fingernails from the wild wolf. Lighting effects were supplied by the electrical testing laboratories under the supervision of H. Canabrake. The fourth round was prolonged eight hours at the request of the official artist, Mr. H. Wanderer, who wished to put certain shadings of fantasy into his representation of the wolf's depleted physiognomy, which included several supernumerary details supplied by the imagination. The climax came in round five, when the Texas Terror's left passed entirely through battling Bernie's face and brought both sluggers to the mat. This was adjudged a finish by the referee, Robertiev Esovich Karovsky, the Muscovite ambassador, who, in view of the Shokan Shoka's gory state, declared the latter to be essentially liquidated, according to the Marxian ideology. The Wild Wolf entered an official protest, which was promptly overruled, on the ground that all points necessary to technical death were theoretically present. The Gonfalons sounded a fanfare of triumph for the victor. While the technically vanquished was committed to the care of the official mortician, Mr. T. Berry Quince. During the ceremonies, the theoretical corpse strolled away for a bite of bologna, but a tasteful cenotaph was supplied to furnish a focus for the rites. The funeral procession was headed by a gaily bedecked hearse driven by Malik Taus, the peacock sultan, who sat on the box in West Point uniform and turban, and steered an expert course over several formidable hedges and stone walls. About halfway to the cemetery, the cortege was rejoined by the corpse, who sat beside Sultan Malik on the box and finished his bologna sandwich, his ample girth having made it impossible to enter the hastily selected cenotaph. An appropriate dirge was rendered by Maestro Sing Lebaldote on the piccolo. Messrs. De Silva, Brown and Henderson's celebrated aria Never Swat a Fly from the old cantana Just Imagine being chosen for the occasion. The only detail omitted from the funeral was the internment, which was interrupted by the disconcerting news that the official gate-taker, the celebrated financier and publisher, Ivor K. Rodent Esquire, had absconded with the entire proceeds. This omission was regretted chiefly by the Reverend D. Vestvind, who was thereby forced to leave unspoken a long and moving sermon revised expressly for the celebration from a former discourse delivered at the burial of a favourite horse. Mr. Talcum's report of the event, illustrated by the well-known artist Clark Ashton, who esoterically depicted the fighters as boneless fungi, was printed after repeated rejections by the discriminating editor of the Windy City Grab Bag, as a broadside by W. Peter Sheff, with typographical supervision by Vrest Orton. This through the efforts of Otis Albert Burke Klein, 
was finally placed on sale in the bookshop of Smearham and Weep, three and a half copies finally being disposed of through the alluring catalogue description supplied by Samulius Philanthropius Esquire. In response to this wide demand, the text was finally reprinted by Mr. D. Merritt, polychromatic pages of Worst's Weekly Americana under the title Has Science Been Outmoded? or The Millers in the Garage. No copies, however, remain in circulation, since all which were not snapped up by the fanatical bibliophiles were seized by the police in connection with the libel suit of the Wild Wolf, who was, after several appeals ending with the World Court, adjudged not only officially alive, but the clear winner of the combat. The end. Yeah, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. It's a, yeah, quite an amusing little piece, isn't it? I, I imagine you recognise a lot of the names, but I also imagine that more than a few eluded you. So now what I'm going to do is go through the story using the notes and explain the references. The setting of the story uh, in the story is Cohen's Garage, which is a reference to Kelly's Stables, which was a nightclub in New York, which was often frequented by celebrities and things like that. And it was often made the news as being the site of a punch-up or two, you know? So that that's why that was chosen. Of course, our first combatant, Two-Gun Bob, is Mr. Robert E. Howard. Uh, the second combatant is a Bernard Austin Dwyer from West Chicane, New York, which is interesting. It says in the notes here in the book I'm going from, an unseemly champion of the strange story Ferminant, because he published little, if any, fiction. So there you go. When it mentions that the wolf was fresh from his correspondence course in physical training, sold to him by Mr. Arthur Leeds, as of course talking about Calum Club member Arthur Leeds, who was once connected with the Home Correspondence School of Springfield, Massachusetts. When it talks about the auguries, and it mentions a Tibetan Lama, it mentions Bill Lumley, that is William Lumley, from Buffalo, New York, who was a mystic and a fiction writer and a revision client of H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft revised his story, The Diary of Alonzo Typer. In the next line, when it talks about cream puffs being inattentively vended by Vladislaw Brennerick, the authors are talking about H. Vaughna Munn of Athol, Massachusetts, who's another writer. Lovecraft refers to Munn's cream puff vending in his letter to Barlow of the 1st of September 1934. So that was obviously an in-joke. The two official surgeons, Drs. D. H. Killer and M. Jin Brewery, that's Dr. David H. Keller, who is a prolific science fiction author and physician, and Miles G. Brewer, who is the author of The Man with the Strange Head and Paradise and Iron. When he talks about a tooth being knocked out and uh, a couple of people going to go and track it down, the first one mentioned is A. Hijacked Burrell, that is uh, a reference to a. Hyatt Verrill, who was a prolific author, whose work included the Boy Adventure series and also science fiction. And the other one mentioned, G.A. Scotland, was George Allen England, who was an explorer and author of science fiction novels. Of course, our next reference is, was one probably known to most of you, Frank Chime Sleep Short, that's Frank Belknap Long. Now, interestingly, because it talks about the defective lines of poetry, proletarian propaganda with three inattentionally defective lines. That was another in-joke between Lovecraft and Barlow, because the two men printed and published a collection of Long's verse entitled The Goblin Tower. 
and Lovecraft mentioned to correspondents that he and Barlow not only organised the contents of the book, but also revised the poem somewhat to Long's complete indifference. In a letter from Lovecraft to Barlow dated the 10th of July 1936, Lovecraft writes, You don't want to follow Belknap's example of intentionally defective lines. Now, now our, ne- our next um, reference is, is a, a skewering. It mentions a potent- potentate from a neighbouring kingdom, the FJ of Akamin, who expressed his frenzied disgust at the technique of the combatants, at the same time peddling photographs of the fighters, with him himself in the foreground, at five cents each. That's talking about Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a science fiction fan. He is best known to people as being the one that started that massive <laughs> pre-internet flame war in the letters pages called The Boiling Point in the fantasy fan. Now, I actually have the complete thing of this in Dormwood Spire Lonely Hill in the appendices, and uh, I intend to go through this at some point in detail. But yeah, it was a, a vitriolic debate between Ackerman and various weird tale enthusiasts, including Lovecraft, Clark Ashen Smith, and Barlow. And Ackerman was also known for shamelessly selling photographs and autographs, even of writers whose work he denigrated. So there you go. When we get onto the passage about the official artists, the first one mentioned, Mrs. M. Blunderidge, is a reference to Margaret Brundage of Chicago, who was often referred to as anatomist because of a notorious cover art for weird tales depicting nudes in scenes not described in the stories, adorned as descripted here, so lots of curling tobacco smoke, I'm imagining. Our next one was Mr. C. Half Cent, who depicted the two combatants as Chinamen in silk hats and galoshes. This was a reference to C.C. Senf, illustrator for Weird Tales. Lovecraft frequently accused Senf of providing illustrations that did not depict scenes from the stories. Our next one, which was about the amateur sketches that were turned into an annual cubist exhibit <laughs> called Abstraction of an Eradicated Pudding, Mr. Gooey Huey, uh, is a reference to Guy L. Huey, an illustrator for Marvel Tales, another artist whose art did not match the contents of the publication it adorned. When he talks about the crowd getting frenzied and the more enthusiastic people being placed in the custody of Mr. Harry Brobst of the Butler Hospital for Mental Diseases, that's talking about Harry K. Brobst, who was a friend of Lovecraft's, who was a nurse at Butler Hospital in Providence. So there you go, that's a nice little touch. The official reporter, Mr. W. Labalash Talcum, was a reference to Wilfred Blanche Tolman, who was a Calum Club member, and he was another person who Lovecraft revised work for. Lovecraft revised the story Two Black Bottles. In the sentence talking about him, it says that the entire affair was reported by Mr. W. Lablash Talcum, his copy being revised by Horsepower Hate Art. That, of course, is H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I, I can only assume that was a Barlow inclusion. And I've never actually heard that one before. He's usually called HPL, you know, yeah. <laughs> the phonetic spelling. But there you go, yeah. Horsepower hate art. I like it, I like it. Of course, the next one is easily recognisable. The notes were taken by the Comte de Herlette. That's Mr. August Derleth. And it mentions here that it, it was, he was doing it for a 200-volume novel cycle in the Proustian manner to be entitled Morning in September. 
Now, that's a reference to uh, Derleth's Sork cycle of novels. Apparently, Derleth had ambitious plans for a very long fictional work about Wisconsin, and Lovecraft had read Derleth's often-revised Evening in Spring many, many times, so that was a dig. (laughs) Next up, we had Mr. J. Caesar Wartz, who was interviewing both battlers and important spectators. That's a reference to Julius Schwartz, who was the editor of Fantasy Magazine. And he also acted as Lovecraft's agent. It was him who sold The Mountains of Madness to Astounding Stories. Next up, he was talking about the lighting effects being supplied by the electrical testing laboratories under the supervision of H. Canabrake. That's a reference to H.C. Koenig of New York, a weird fiction enthusiast who lent Lovecraft his books and gave Lovecraft a tour of the electrical testing laboratories where he worked. The official artist... Mr. H. Wanderer, who wished to put certain shadings of fantasy into his representation of the Walt's depleted physiognomy, and included several supernumerary details supplied by the imagination, was a reference to Howard Wandry of St. Paul, known for his intricately detailed pen and ink drawings, and he was the brother of Donald Wandry, and illustrated his brother's volume of poetry, Dark Odyssey. When he talks about the Miscoviate ambassador, Robertiev Esovich Karovsky, that's talking about Robert Spencer Carr, who was an espoused Marxist and visited the Soviet Union in the early 30s. After the battle had ended and the vanquish was committed to the care of the official mortician, Mr. Tebury Quince, that's a reference, of course, to Seabury Quinn, lawyer and editor of the Mortician's Journal, Casket and Sunnyside, as well as a prolific contributor to Weird Tales. I never knew that he... He was the editor of a mortician's journal. But there you go. Malik Taus, the peacock sultan who sat in the box in West Point uniform and turban, is a reference to Edgar Hoffman Price, or E. Hoffman Price. Now, as another in-joke, Lovecraft referred to Price as the peacock sultan because of his affinity for peacocks and because of his interest in the Middle East. Price could speak Arabic, apparently. Now, Price and Lovecraft went on to co-write Through the Gates of the Silver Key. So that's probably where most people will know him from. On to the music. The writer of the dirge, Maestro Singly Baldout, on the piccolo. That is F. Lee Baldwin, who was a fantasy fan, an amateur musician, and was one of the first people to ever write a biographical study of H.P. Lovecraft. Him and Barlow worked together on putting together various biographical things after Lovecraft's death. Um, They also collected letters and things like that, so they were kind of preserving Lovecraft's legacy. The writers of the Aria, Messrs. De Silva, Brown and Henderson, that is George Gard, Buddy De Silva, Lou Brown and Ray Henderson, who were a songwriting team of the era. Next up, we have another skewering, because it mentions that the only detail omitted from the funeral was the internment which was interrupted by the disconcerting news that the official gate-taker, celebrated financier and publisher Ivar K. Rodent Esquire, had absconded with the entire proceeds. That is referring to Hugo Hugo Gernsback, science fiction magazine editor. Gernsback was notorious for late payment for stories he published, earning from Lovecraft the epithet Hugo the Rat, hence Rodent. Interestingly, the the next reference, Reverend D. Vest Vind, nobody knows who that's supposed to be. Next up was a quite a recognisable one, probably one of the most easily recognisable, especially when it mentions esoterically depicting the fighters as boneless fungi, Clark Ashton, that is of course Clark Ashton Smith. Now amusingly, for pe- people who listen to Strange Shadows or know anything about Smith's career as a writer, 
will know about how often he was rejected by um, Mr. Farnsworth Wright at Weird Tales and how much him and Lovecraft like to moan about this fact. So this bit was a little dig here. It says that Clarkestron's illustrations were finally printed after repeated rejections by the discriminating editor of the Windy City Grab Bag. That is a reference to Farnsworth Wright and Weird Tales. But it was printed as a broadside by W. Peter Sheff. That is W. Paul Cook who published Wondry's Dark Odyssey and printed, but did not buy nor distribute, Lovecraft's The Shunned House. Barlow received the printed sheets by way of Walter J. Coates, but only bound a few copies. The person who added typographical supervision, Vrest Orton, that is a reference to Vrest Teachout Orton, who was a Vermont writer and late member of the Calum Club, associated with Stephen Day Press, for which Lovecraft edited a book. Next up, it says that the efforts of Otis Adelberg Klein were finally placed on sale. That is Otis Adelberg Klein, a literary agent and author. Lovecraft and Klein participated in cigarette characterizations in Fantasy Magazine 3, number 4, June 1934. Now, the bookshop where it was sold, here called Smearum and Weep, is a reference to the shop Dorber and Pine which was the bookstore where Lovecraft's friend Samuel Loveman worked. So, the next person mentioned is re- a reference to Samuel Loveman, who was a poet and Calum Club member, and something of a mentor to Clark Ashton Smith. He is here known as Samulius Philanthropius Esquire. Finally, we have this passage. In response to this wide demand, the text was finally reprinted by Mr. D. Merritt in the polychromatic pages of Worst's Weekly Americana, under the title Has Science Been Outmoded?, or The Millers in the Garage. Now, the allusions are as follows. A. Merritt, who was a writer, quite a prolific writer of weird fiction, Hearst American Weekly, where Merritt worked, Henshaw Ward's Science Has Not Gone Mystical, which was printed in the Atlantic Monthly, and Merritt's own The Dwellers in the Mirage. So, yeah. <laughs> the Millers in the Garage. I like it, I like it. There you go. That should hope to fill in a few blanks for you. I hope you enjoyed that. And um, (laughs) like I said, that should dispel a lot of notions about uh, Lovecraft not having a sense of humour. Now, just before I go, I would just like to raise a glass to Robert H. Barlow. Because while it is known that August Derleth and Arkham House preserved a lot of Lovecraft's stuff for future generations... What is lesser known is is Barlow's contribution to that. While Lovecraft was staying at the family home, Barlow family home in Florida, Barlow persuaded Lovecraft to lend him the handwritten manuscripts of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and the case of Charles Dexter Ward so that he could type them up for him. It's fortunate that Lovecraft agreed, or these two stories of which he held low opinion might today be lost to the world. So, cheers, Mr. Barlow. Thank you. Especially as Charles Dexter Ward is one of my favourites. God, can you imagine if that didn't exist? There you go. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together today, and I will see you again properly in the new year when we'll be back with proper episodes of the Innsmouth Book Club and Strange Shadows. But for now, have a good festival, and don't pet the shog off. Good night. <laughs>